Welcome. Thank you so much all for coming. This is really, it's really exciting to have everybody here and to be here, especially with these two guys. As you're going to see, I'll introduce them in a second. What we're going to talk about today is everything that you didn't learn in ACLS, some of the things you may have been thinking about ACLS, what works, what doesn't work, sprinkling some of the new guidelines that came out last week, and do some Q&A, and hopefully get some friendly or sometimes not so friendly debate with my co-speakers right here. So just to introduce everybody, we have Bill Brady here from University of Virginia, who's with us. We have Jeff Tabis from UCSF, and my name is Sean Kivlihan, and I'm from here in Boston at Brigham. So my mindset in cardiac arrest for this talk is quick. Let's do a lot of things stat. And uh, my mindset is, uh, why bother? Nothing works. Just call it. Not really, but, you know, to a cer certain extent, Jerry Hoffman, my mentor, said, don't just do something, stand there. We'll see. <laughs> and this is my mindset, which has been the preparing this lecture, because every single slide these two argued on, and I try to offer my opinion, but then they kind of go at it. But I think it'll make for a great discussion and a great debate here today on what works and what doesn't work. And you guys can form your own opinions. Here's what we're going to go through. We're going to talk about what happens before we see the patient, which, as you'll see, is maybe the most important thing. The majority of cardiac arrest care is done out in the street and not even done by trained providers, but by bystanders. And we'll talk about the new apps and things like that that you can use and the importance of public access to fibrillation. We'll talk about the trained healthcare providers that show up, so the EMS providers, the firefighters, the police, the people that help. We'll talk about us in the ED, what we do, and we'll talk about what should be happening afterwards in the ICU. We're going to have a case that will walk us through most of the talk, and it'll guide us through our discussion. So here's our case. You're anywhere in suburbia USA at a strip mall getting a taco or getting your favorite lunch, and suddenly a 53-year-old guy collapses, just grabs his chest, falls down, and that's it. People start screaming help. And you think, you know, I'm an ER doctor, I should probably do something, or maybe I can hide and, you know, just go back to work. This is my one day off, my first day off in forever. So I want to ask you guys, what do you think is the most important thing? So, of course, you want to do all three of these things, right? But you need to think, what comes first? Because this person's laying there. So who here would just drop everything and call 911 right away? Who here? That's what I would do. I'd call for help. I don't want to be there alone for that long. So, because remember, you call 911, the ambulance doesn't just fall out of the sky in front of you. It's going to take a little while to get there. Those guys got to, you know, get up, get off the couch, get in the ambulance and start it. And I can say that. I used to be a paramedic. But it's, it takes a while. Who would just start CPR? Not call for help and just start compressions? A lot of people. Because you know that works. You know it helps. It's easy. You don't have to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth anymore, right? You can just do compressions. Who would... Look for an AD. Who would think, oh, I think there's an AD across the street, and actually run, leave the patient, try to get an AD, because that's what works, and that's the most important thing. A few people. Who didn't vote? <laughs> <laughs> well, those are the people that just got off of their shift, and they're finishing their tacos. <laughs> this is the one thing that I think we did agree on preparing this lecture, is that this is the order of response. The first thing you should do is always call for help. And this goes if you're in the hospital. Think, you pop into that room and that patient suddenly isn't breathing. The first thing you need to do is call for help. Help isn't going to come unless people know that you need help. Then, once help is coming, start compressions. Get the blood flowing again. We'll talk about why that's so important. And then, call for the AD. Hopefully, it'll show up and do CPR until it gets there. So, as Sean has pointed out, the, one of the keys to survival is the time to therapy. Therapy is important to deliver by the lay provider, by the trained provider. And this graph basically shows the time to um, survival in patients with cardiac arrest. How do, we get, how do we get providers to the side sooner than later? And here we're talking about lay providers. A very new technology using smartphone-based uh, apps, PulsePoint is probably the most widely known, allows people in the community to sign up for this app. And when a cardiac arrest occurs, the 911 center will, at the same time uh, units are dispatched to the scene, will also send out an alert across the uh, pulse point um, uh, uh, system. That identifies the location of the cardiac arrest and if there's AEDs in the area, the location of the AEDs. So it allows people to get to the patient side very quickly, initiate chest compressions, and if there's an AED there. 
This was recently reviewed by the guidelines in the guidelines 2015 by the Heart Association, and while it didn't receive um, firm backing, it did receive a mention as a very important tool to consider so that we can get care to the patient's side immediately. And when the, pa when the providers get there, they're going to perform bystander CPR. Numerous papers have shown, go ahead. Numerous papers have demonstrated the very significant survival benefit of bystander CPR, whether it's uh, performed via dispatcher instruction or a lay provider arriving on scene prior to EMS. Any form of bystander CPR increases the chance of survival. Very important tool. And we've seen recently that compression-only CPR, as compared to traditional CPR, is as good and in some cases better than traditional CPR. We need to get people there and start pushing on the chest as soon as possible. Do you think it's better because, uh, so I have a friend who just did CPR and he was not aware, a lay person, he was not aware that we're only doing compression only and he actually got blood on his mouth from doing CPR from the victim. Doesn't know if he survived or not, we tried to track him down. But I wonder if compression only CPR does well because you're more likely to do it if you don't have to put your mouth on someone who's vomiting up blood. So, you know, I, I think that's a good point. Could I think help. that the reluctance to expose yourself to you know, body fluids, including blood, certainly dissuades certain people from doing it. And it would yep. probably dissuade me. I've done it once, and that was enough. Um, but the science does show, Jeff, okay, the science. The American Heart Association, I don't know if you've heard of them. That right here is guidelines. a big book, Bill. Has demonstrated that hands-only Hands-only CPR, the compression-only CPR, is a very important initial tool and can make a big difference, yes. You can strain yourself picking that up. You've read this. I just skimmed it. Yes, yes. Well, and it's true. It's actually been studied. And what I always thought, the most, reason, the most common reason somebody wouldn't want to do bystander CPR is because of the mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. It's gross. It's kind of disgusting. It's intimidating. But actually, the most common reason is because people are afraid of messing up, that they're afraid of doing more harm than good which is reasonable. They don't want to hurt somebody. And by simplifying this and doing compression only, we're hoping that we're going to increase the responder rate in the field. So this graph shows the survival curve relative to the time of, of intervention. And intervention can be compression only CPR, it can be traditional CPR, this can be use of an AED, or it can be advanced care by EMS or a nurse physician team. But time to therapy makes a big difference. And if we wait for the traditional EMS response in most suburban areas, that's about eight to 10 minutes. And we see the chance of survival here is 10% or less. So why not try to move this curve to the left and actually give people a much better chance of survival? And how are we gonna do that? By empowering the lay provider, by teaching CPR, by getting the word up about compression-only CPR, by putting AEDs in the community and allowing people to be notified via PulsePoint and other such tools to get to the patient's side because the game is going to be won or lost large, largely before the EMS gets there and way long before they get to the emergency department to see us. I don't know what you think about that, Jeff. Hard to argue. So this graph, kind of cool, shows compressions during uh, simulated CPR. Each undulation is a compression. And important points to note here that it takes multiple sequential compressions to begin to develop any kind of forward flow, any kind of perfusion. Now the perfusion that we can reach in cardiac arrest using chest compressions can approach systolic pressures of 80, 100, sometimes 120, depending on the patient, depending on the rescuer, depending on the device used. So you can reach quite, quite adequate pressures, but it takes multiple compressions delivered sequentially to reach that pressure. And then each time we interrupt, we stop compression. This is what we want to strive for. We want to limit our interruptions, and we want to have as continuous chest compressions as possible. That's going to give the patient the best chance of survival, the, the best opportunity at perfusion, the best chance at neurologically intact survival after the event. And can we just clarify the point where the curve is rising, the blood pressure is increasing to the point where it levels off to the level you want? is about 45 to 60 seconds. So you're doing a fair amount of chest compressions, is that correct? Yes, sir. Before you get to the level of perfusion that you want. So this graph basically compares the two approaches, the interrupted chest compressions in the upper left versus the more continuous in the lower right. Now, we all know that there are reasons to stop compressions, to look at a rhythm, to deliver shock, 
to look for signs of life, et cetera, et cetera. Technology and technique is improving to the point where we're probably not going to stop compressions until we have return of spontaneous circulation. But we're not there yet. We live in a world now where some interruptions are appropriate, but we want to be very stingy, very jealous with our time off the chest. In fact, the Heart Association has adopted a phrase that many researchers have already described called the chest compression fraction, which is a quick math problem that during a resuscitation, the amount of time you're doing compressions divided by the total time of arrest is the chest compression fraction. The higher the chest compression fraction, the more compressions are occurring during the resuscitation. The Heart Association recommends in the most recent guidelines at least a 60% time of uh, compression during arrest. And if you think about it, that's just slightly more than half. I personally would like to strive for 70 to 80%. Why do you think it was only 60%? When I read the guidelines, I was kind of shocked. I was like, 60% compression fraction? I must be doing way better than that already with my CPR. Well, I think if you look at some of the older literature, particularly some of the airway literature and how it impacts uh, uh, resuscitation, performing airway takes long periods of time. And many studies have demonstrated that we are actually off the chest more than we're on the chest during resuscitation. So while we're, we'd like to have 70 to 80%, if we can get to 60%, that's better than where we probably are now on average 30 to 40%. It's also a life lesson. If you set your expectations low, you will meet them. <laughs> It is an achievable goal. <laughs> and these are the sobering facts that we think about. Every 10 seconds that that person waits without compressions, their survivability goes down by 5%. It's incredible. So think about it. What ambulance is going to be there in less than two minutes? It's just unlikely. You can't deploy resources that fast. And as Jeff said, when you stop CPR and start compressions again, it doesn't just start perfusing the brain instantly. It takes almost a minute to build up, no matter how good your CPR is. And that last point is very important. Whenever you stop compressions, and you're doing a procedure, you're doing a determination, you're doing something, the amount of non-perfusion time is that time sequence plus 45 seconds. Okay? That's a long time. And if you have several of those during an arrest event, what's the ultimate point? And you can adopt the TABUS. Well, Nothing works. Let's just call the code right can, now. Can I say these new 2015 guidelines, I personally feel the most important thing I learned is that it takes a while to get cerebral perfusion up from your CPR and you do not want to stop CPR. I am not sure there's anything significant here that's really going to change our practice, but we'll get to that. Because one thing that's surely going to change the practice is mechanical devices, right? Well, who here has seen one of these in the past 24 hours? Probably down, <laughs> downstairs, right? And Everybody. Things. Anybody using these? Using these in their ERs? How about your EMS system using? Patients are coming in on these? Yeah. So. And do you like them? Yes, love them. Oh, I see. I see some nose. Got it. <laughs> yeah, somebody else needs to You don't have to break a sweat and get all messy in front of everybody. But you know, the first time I saw these things, I thought I, it was the thumper. Remember that? And, and I saw it in the ER, and I was blown away. I was like, "That's brilliant. That makes so much sense. They do CPR so much better. That it doesn't get tired." But you may be familiar with some of the studies that have come out over the years. They really haven't proven themselves to be more effective than conventional CPR. That's reflected in the new guidelines that came out last week. The actual recommendation was not that they're superior, but that they're at best equivalent, that there's no randomized trials showing that the mechanical CPR devices are better or superior than standard CPR. Now, honestly, I was surprised because I still can't wrap my head around this because these things do make sense to me intuitively. And I'm an advocate for resource-poor settings, which the AHA guidelines are as well. So if you're in an ambulance and a moving ambulance, it's much better to have one of these devices. If you're in a cath lab and they're trying to cath somebody, it's much better to have one of these devices. Maybe in a resource-poor hospital, it might be, might be worth it to have these devices. Yeah, as a, uh, as a senior resident, I moonlit almost full-time. I hope my residency director's not here. And in that hospital, there was a nurse in the emergency department, me, and if it got busy, we would call the nursing supervisor. So if you had a cardiac arrest in that environment, that would be another situation where you could consider using these devices. So if think, you had the money in that resource-poor setting to buy one of these. <laughs> the yes, the problem is, yeah, these things aren't cheap. But And the other thing is, if you put one of these on, I had the pleasure of back before I went to med school and I worked on the ambulance, I was in the Zoll trial, and my ambulance was randomized to the autopulse. And you know what it's like carrying this thing up six flights of stairs in a Bronx walk-up? It's not that much fun. So, And then trying to put it on, and then the battery's dead or something like that. So there's a lot of things, I think, that people didn't prepare for. Once it's on and working, it's great. It's all those barriers to get it working. So I think 
personally, these things hold a lot of promise. They are not going away, and if you're in the right setting, they can definitely be useful. They just haven't shown benefit yet. But like you say, in this setting, they could be useful. They haven't shown harm. They haven't shown harm. As long as they haven't hurt anybody. Right, right. So let's talk about what we've talked about so far. It's like the meeting about the meeting. So the most important things, lay provider care. A lot of the care, the most important care happens before we ever interact with the patient. As emergency room physicians in this field, our patients are not just within the emergency room, they're in our whole community. And it's our job not just to provide great care in the emergency department, but in our communities as well. So we should be out there supporting these efforts for community CPR, for the large-scale CPR outreach, public access defibrillation. Because if we want to get patients brought to us with the best chance of survival, we need to have our community helping us out. This is something we can't do alone. We can't be there quick enough. Anybody here have the Pulse Point app on their phone? A few people just put it on. Now, so, if you ask in a legal society meeting who has the Pulse Point app, they all have it because then they know where to go to the cardiac arrest to uh, get their next case. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. So it's, um, so it's great. We, I, we don't have any interest in the company, but these types of things are great, and they really do work into the way of the future, so you should think about it. Compression-only CPR, it's easy, it makes sense. Nowadays, if you're the EMS dispatcher, somebody calls 911 says, I need help, I don't know what to do. Remember the BLS algorithm 10, 15 years ago? It was all these weird ratios and numbers you had to remember. People would panic. Now it's put your two hands in the middle of their chest, push down 100 times a minute, and wait for help to get there. That's it. That's your whole CPR course. That's all you need to know. It's that simple. Simple is good. Simple is what we remember. And personally, I feel that's appropriate in the emergency department in the first four, six, eight minutes of an arrest event as well. Yeah, definitely. Interruptions are bad. We've talked about that, and the mechanical devices, I think, they, I think they do show some promise. We just haven't figured it out perfectly yet. Let's go back to our case. So now, 911 is called. Somebody called for help. Bystanders have come, and they start chest compressions. They're doing their compressions. Somebody comes running up with an AED. So what do we do with this AED? So um, who here believes that they should have an AED nearby them? Nobody? Oh, a lot? Okay. Like 50%. Yeah, high hands. <laughs> Who here has one at home? Anybody? Yeah, no, some, some of us. Really? So um, this is a device that saves lives. So portable. So I'm being a little facetious here. So I'm, you know, appropriately placed AEDs is my belief. But they're portable. You know, they're easy and safe to use. They markedly reduce the time to first shock. Um, obviously, they don't replace CPR. You still do CPR. So next slide. Some studies show amazing benefits. So we have a study out of uh, this study. Uh, was out of the Netherlands? Netherlands. The Netherlands. Yep, this Sorry. is our Netherlands study. It was an observational trial, but it showed that if you had AEDs, you had, fa you had faster time to getting defibrillated and 50% survival instead of 5% survival. They did studies in Vegas where everything's observed so they could see the cardiac arrest and come running at them. So they were either cheating or in cardiac arrest. That's why they were being watched from the cameras. They raced down. They had great rates of survival, 50% without AEDs, but 75% with AEDs. AEDs. Again, observational. And then Chicago airports, um, everyone's eating a lot of kielbasa there. They have fairly high rates of cardiac arrest. And again, if you compare it to the city of Chicago, 2% survival rate in the airport, 69%. Fantastic. Okay. And I slide. think that first one says it all. That table on the bottom there, the AD time to shock, 4 minutes versus 8 minutes versus 11 minutes, that's one thing. But the real story is the, is the calm next to it. 50% survived versus 14%. I mean, those numbers are just, I think, absolutely incredible. So I have a question. Has anyone seen observational studies that look amazing that don't pan out? That's what they're supposed to do. Anybody? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got to be very, very, very careful. Hy observational studies are hypothesis generating. However, they did a randomized controlled trial of AEDs. How are you going to do that? It was brilliant. They basically assigned them by community units. So communities either had AEDs or they didn't. And then they trained the lay volunteers to either do uh, CPR or CPR and use the AED. So it turns out AEDs were fantastic. If you had AEDs in your community, you had 23% survival, whereas if you only had CPR, you had 14% survival. So that was the randomized controlled trial. Now, this only makes sense if it's 
the cost-benefit works. And usually we talk about quality of life year saved. And if a device is under 100,000 per quality of life year or any intervention, or, or even better, under 50,000, then it's great. So they did the analysis, Annals of uh, Emergency Medicine 2009. They analyzed this trial. And it was $26,000 per quality of life year saved, which is clearly a major impact. But if you read the study, instead of looking at the abstract, there was no benefit whatsoever to AEDs. They adjusted the rate of cardiac arrest for ascertainment bias. And ascertainment bias was, they said that in communities that had AEDs, they picked up more cardiac arrests. So they eliminated those 45 extra cardiac arrests. They said 45 didn't count, so it's 90 versus 90. And then if it's 90 versus 90, you have way higher survival. But if you include all the cardiac arrests with AEDs and all the cardiac arrests with CPR only, there's no difference in survival or benefit. So why would they do that? Well, I'm not saying this is the case, but if you, again, if you read it carefully, there was potential conflict of interest of the significant of the lead author. What's conflict of interest means you have stock or a board member or getting support from the companies that make AEDs. I'm not calling into question any ethics. I'm just saying you have to look at this very carefully. And I actually emailed the uh, deputy chief of the annals to ask a little bit about this question, but still waiting for a response. But you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Is this really the randomized control trial that shows us benefit, or does that little adjustment they make call all this into question? So Jeff, first of all, one article, or even two articles, doesn't make the entire literature base on any given topic. Except there, if it's randomized versus observational. There's yeah. a number of other studies. We're playing like, you know, um, there's a number. Saturday Night Can Live. I talk? Yeah. Can Go I ahead. talk? There's a number of other studies out there that show that it does markedly reduce the time to defibrillation. It does improve the survival, okay? And people that have witnessed events, shockable rhythm. This paper is kind of the common sense approach. Yeah, we don't need to put AEDs everywhere. We don't need to put them in elementary schools. We don't need to put them in college dormitories. Those patients happily have a very low chance of cardiac arrest. And when they do have an arrest, they more likely have a non-shockable rhythm. This paper suggests putting them in casinos. We've all been to Las Vegas. You walk through there, and as Jeff says, these are nothing but poster children for cardiac arrest. Chicago O'Hare Airport, getting flights canceled, et cetera, the kielbasa. These patients are at risk. So let's be intelligent about where we put them and put them in the right spot, and that way we can maximize things. Does every building on every floor need one? Absolutely not. Okay. Yeah, I, I just think you have to be careful because uh, I, I think the real way to think of it is there was a sophisticated cost-benefit analysis, and they decided that if there's a 15% chance of a cardiac arrest in five years in any given location, it's worthwhile. That's the threshold. Again, hard to determine how you would determine that. So, all right. How about, okay, we've gone through AEDs. How about ACLS? Who believes in doing advanced cardiac life support? Come on, everyone, we're at ASEP, guys. Who does not believe in doing advanced cardiac life support? Wow, we have like a handful of people who don't believe in it. Okay, so let's those, get those, those people that just raised their hand, what do you do during a cardiac arrest? Is it the Tavis approach of just calling the arrest before you start, or? As somebody who trained with Tavis, I can attest that he's usually eating ice cream in the break room. <laughs> Yeah, but that's because my residents are darn good, and they're doing CPR and giving the ACLS meds. But do you really need to give ACLS meds? So my favorite article of all time is Ian Steele's New England Journal article, 2005, where he reported on Canadian provinces and compared ones that used ACLS to just EMS. So basically CPR and defibrillation versus Paramedics that can intubate, that can give amiodarone, epinephrine. Like, they could even give high-dose epinephrine. They could even give Britillium. Um, anybody remember Britillium was on the list? Yeah, okay, good, okay. Um, and what they found was the, the relative importance of interventions in cardiac arrest. If it was witnessed arrest with a bystander, you did really well. If there was bystander CPR, 
You did really well. If there was defibrillation, in, like eight minutes is getting a little bit long, and you know the CPR wasn't quite as good, but you still did really well. Oh, and look, advanced life support, there was no statistically significant improvement from the whole rigmarole. So I know we have a little bit of difference of opinion in this, but I am not a fan of advanced cardiac life support. That, do we have a pointer? Or maybe you can just point out on that. Just here, it just shows another, let's see, another graphic representation. This is the rapid defibrillation versus, you know, having people that can do the whole rigmarole, and it's basically the same survival. So no difference in survival. I would say I only eat ice cream after we've done CPR and tried shocks, and that doesn't work. Okay. So are you saying our take-home message is just that nothing works, we're all wasting our time? No, CPR and defibrillation. So, and that's, what, that's the emphasis here. So what we've talked about up until this point, we're halfway done with this lecture, and we're only just now arriving at the hospital. And this is why the emphasis is so important on lay respiratory CPR and communication. That's why the new AHA guidelines put so much emphasis on notifying the public of cardiac arrest nearby so that they can start doing CPR so that they can find an AD, because those are all the things that matter. The other stuff... We're going to talk about some of the finer points, but the money is in the basics. And if you've been through the past several AHA revisions, you've seen that each time that book gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and the medications become less and less and less. Back to our case. So the police are shown, have now shown up. Our healthcare providers have shown up. The care transition happens. And now we have trained people in ACLS giving ACLS. They're doing chest compressions. They're going to check their rhythm. So when you look at cardiac arrest, particularly in the world we work in, out of hospital and ED-based, the vast majority of patients have a cardiogenic cardiac arrest. It's a cardiac event causing the cardiac arrest. ACS, primary dysrhythmia, from whatever reason. Okay, the vast majority of people have that. And when you look at the issues in approaching these patients, a sudden cardiogenic cardiac arrest, the patient was well until they made a gurgling sound and fell over. Okay. They had no oxygen debt. They had plenty of ATP stores. And in those situations, we have a fair amount of time where we don't have to focus on the airway, but we can pull back and focus on the shockable rhythm and providing awesome chest compressions that our mothers would be proud of. Okay. Airway is important, yes, but it's less important. Okay. And particularly in the first couple minutes of a cardiogenic cardiac arrest, I would theorize that an airway isn't important at all. Okay. I'm actually agreeing here with our therapeutic nihilist, Dr. Tabus. Wow. Contrast Whoa. that. All right, calm down. Sure? Contrast that with non-cardiogenic cardiac arrest. This is the PEA arrest. This is the asystole arrest. These patients have been ill for minutes to hours to days to decades, and they slowly have developed an oxygen debt. They've eaten up their ATP reserve. So when they do arrest, they are actually very, very ill. In this case, we need to focus on circulation and also focus on early airway management. So very significant difference. Granted, it's hard to sort those out early in the setting of an arrest, but it is very important to focus on the cardiogenic arrest with the priorities we've already mentioned. Cardiocerebral resuscitation. This is just one more thing that supports the value of doing CPR and not intervening with any advanced airway or possibly even bag valve mass. So correct me if I'm wrong, cardiocerebral resuscitation, you do 200 chest compressions, right? And then you apply passive oxygen, but you don't stop for bag valve masking. You do a uh, check for the rhythm and you shock if they need it. And then you do chest compressions again for 200, you do three cycles. And so an Arizona registry of EMS centers that had trained them to do this versus EMS centers that hadn't trained them to do this approach. And um, they had amazing success with shockable rhythms. It didn't really change the landscape if you had a non-shockable, presumably either late or non-cardiogenic cause of that. Um, so supports that. We, our major impact is in the cardiac group, and the major benefit is CPR and shock. And you can see that in that table in the bottom right there, because that's, I mean, that's the take-home point from this slide. And you can see the so ACLS, that's ACLS versus, versus cardiocerebral CPR. Less is more. These people had incredibly better survival rates. So, so you guys kind of agree less is more? 
Bill? Yes, so. sir. Yeah. Uh, really? I think in this oh. particular instance, yes, sir. Yes, okay. sir. All right. Okay. So summarizing to the point we are right now, most commonly in our environment, what we're seeing is cardiogenic cardiac arrest. So these people are typically not asphyxiated. They're not having respiratory compromise. Yes, that happens, but they're, in, they're by far the minority. So we need to do compressions. We need to do them fast. Cardiotrebial CPR, compressional CPR, is getting more and more traction. Every study that comes out, it just becomes more and more positive. And the new guidelines, it's now been deemed an acceptable alternative to standard CPR in the right setting in a system that's developed for it. So it emphasizes that compressions are the most important thing and to just keep doing it. Airway is not that important. It's not that it's not necessary, but it's not necessarily the best thing while you're doing CPR. This isn't a decision of whether or not we should intubate in the ED. It's a decision of whether or not we should intubate while CPR is being done. And if it gets in the way with good compressions, it shouldn't be done. You gotta focus on the things that work. So now they've loaded our patient to the, into the ambulance and they're going to the ER and they're trying to decide where should they go? Which ER should they drive this patient to? Hmm. Who here has uh, battled a little bit with their region, whether to have a regional uh, receiving center for cardiac arrest? Anybody? Because, you know, if there's regional centers, your center gets less experience. Well, so, so the question is, should you have a regional center? And when they looked at regional centers, observationally, pre and um, post, they found that there were increased rates of appropriate treatments like hypothermia and PCI, and um, patient survival improved from 8.9 to 14.4%. And what we really care about is, because to be honest, we don't really care about survival. We care about neurologically intact survival, and that did increase from 5.9 to 8.9%. So, it, you know, it, in the end, if you do something a lot and you have protocols for doing it, you're gonna do it better. So, you know, it's like anything, it's like stroke care. Like why do stroke centers manage their patients better? It's probably just because they have more attention to the stroke and it might be the same thing for cardiac arrest, but there is an increased push. And in San Francisco, we have just regionalized to um, receiving centers for cardiac arrest as well as for STEMI. So how, how far should a paramedic drive to get to a regional center? So Ten minutes, until three the hours, three percent benefit has disappeared. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on the radio, Dr. Tabus. Do I bring the patient to your hospital, which is 28 minutes away, or do I transport to St. X Hospital, which is right here? Right. So I will. I will bet that there's some smart person who's done that analysis, and I'm just going to gestalt that about a 25-minute difference in transport time correlates with the benefit of a regional center. Once you get over about 25, maybe 30, you probably have no benefit from it. And that's probably true. We don't know yet. We don't actually have the numbers. So it's left up to regions, because every region is different with their resources and their geography. You can see there's a lot of considerations with whether or not to bypass local hospitals to get to a, a tertiary quaternary facility. There's the geography, there's the weather, there's the transport time, there's traffic, what time of day is it, things like that. So it's a very region-specific decision. But just like trauma center model that has been shown to work, you have more resource availability if the patient has returned to spontaneous circulation, and you have more practice. People are just more effective. Yeah, this is a great discussion, but can we get to what we do in the ED? Sure, here we are. Okay, cool. So you're here, they brought the patient into you, they're still in V-fib, there's no airway. What are you gonna do next? So we know it's shocking the patient. Defibrillation is important, and there's been a lot of debate going this way, going that way. Do we shock them right away? If they've been down for a while, do we wait two minutes and do compressions? My personal belief is that let's shock the patient as soon as possible. I would wow. imagine you would agree with that. that. But that's not in the guidelines. Right? I know, but guidelines we're, we're going to go outside of the guidelines. Two minutes. We're going to go outside of the guidelines. Do your two, really? There's some other things. I do that, agree with that. There, there, is, there is some other things here outside of the guidelines. First of all, the pre-charged defibrillator approach. We all know that as we're approaching the time to look at the rhythm and potentially deliver a shock, if we wait, look at the rhythm, determine no signs of life, and then charge our machine, it's gonna take 10 to 15 seconds to be ready to deliver shock. And we already know that for every 10 seconds of time off the chest, that's a, that's a significant reduction in the patient's chance of neurologically intact survival. So let's go ahead and charge the machine in advance, have it ready to go. When you stop, if you need to shock, you shock, and you get back, 
right back on the chest. That just takes about four to five seconds. Make sure you don't lean against the button accidentally. Yes. But I totally support this approach. Who there has been standing there with a patient who needs resuscitation while you're waiting for that thing to charge up? This makes absolute sense, even without data. Double sequential defibrillation. Does anybody do that or heard of that, where you have two defibrillators on? Okay. There's actually a fair amount of talk about that. That's actually taking two defibrillators, connecting both, and simultaneously defibrillating the patient. So if you use Medtronic's Physio, that's 720 joules. If you use the Philips MRX, that's 300 to 400 joules, depending on what you set it on. Okay. There is, in fact, very little data here on this, very little data. It should be considered in patients that have rhythms that have not converted, despite appropriate care, and you can think about it then. But again, there's very little data. The electrophysiologists do this in the EP lab for AFib, AFib that doesn't respond to therapy, and they'll take it up to 720 joules. Cardiac arrest patients we're extrapolating to, so it's still kind of a new concept. I mean, but, this is America. More <laughs> is better, Exactly. Right? Let's do that. exactly. And that applies to epinephrine and vasopressin. Absolutely. Right? So dual pad placement, that's putting two sets of pads on, the base and apex and AP, but only using one at a time. Your first shock is delivered with one set of pads, and then your second shock at the two-minute mark is delivered with the other set of pads, and it's using a different vector approach. If one vector didn't work, let's try a second vector. Again, very little data on that. But I think Dr. Tabus is huh. excited about well, this. Well, you're saying you have four defibrillator pads on. Yes, sir. Four on. And two machines or one machine one that machine. you quickly switch the pads Quickly to. switch the pads. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, show me the data and I might try it. There you go. Yeah. So IV placement, okay? We've talked about ACLS. We've said that ACLS probably isn't the most awesome intervention, but it still has its place. It well, still it's still recommended, value. right? It's still recommended, and we all do it every day. This is a study out of Norway that actually looked at the value of placing an IV and using intravenous medications in the management of cardiac arrest. And we see down in the black box at the bottom that the adjusted odds ratio relative to survival for IV therapy was actually less than one, meaning that patients fared less well relative to the IV placement, okay? So this is really one of the first big nails in the ACLS coffin, I think. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really interesting. So it's kind of hard to tell people not to do the ACLS portion because it's recommended. I've actually testified in cases where they have said that the emergency physician was at fault because they gave the second dose of epinephrine like one minute later than ACLS protocol. So what I'm saying is it's hard not to do it, but you can be a voice of reason to your society um, to whenever it comes up that there is very little evidence. And let's just start with epinephrine. Who here saw that high-dose epinephrine is actually worse for you? Everyone, everyone knows that. And the reason is it jolts you back you know, to survival and return of spontaneous circulation but you actually have, uh, you know, actually higher rates of death, maybe because it jolted back people who were just unresuscitatable. But clearly, that's not recommended anymore. How about just epinephrine? Like, everyone gives epinephrine, right? But it's ironic because there have been several large studies. There's been resuscitation, JAMA. Like, like in, in, in Japan, they looked at, like, I don't know, 100,000 cardiac arrests and lower survival with intact neurostatus when epinephrine was given. Now, granted, this is observational, or at least that study was, but there's never been a good study that shows increased survival when you give epinephrine. And vasopressin, no difference at all. As a matter of fact, we should all know that vasopressin was taken out of these new guidelines. So vasopressin is not recommended. Before, it was recommended as an option. Um, but, you know, I feel like we're kind of like switching stuff around. Like, oh, give high dose up. Uh, nah, we need to revise guidelines, so we'll take that out. Oh, give vasopressin. Uh, next guidelines, we'll take that out. Let's give some bertilium, maybe some lidocaine. So it's really just sort of a, it's all, well, I shouldn't say it's a reason to sort of justify your guidelines because if you remove ACLS, what are your guidelines going to be? Well, at least we can give amiodarone, right? <laughs> So, you know, 
amiodarone there has clearly, like, that, this, these are old studies, 99, 2002. No, no evidence of clear benefit to neurointact survival. There is, from all of these meds, there is benefit to return of spontaneous circulation survival to the hospital. Now, I've heard um, resuscitation uh, advocates say you've got to get return of spontaneous circulation before you can save them. But from no study yet have we seen that increasing rates of return of spontaneous circulation when it hasn't resulted in neural intact survival has led subsequently to increased rates of neural intact survival. What about steroids? Is anybody here giving steroids in cardiac arrest? Anybody seen the studies out of Greece? They're, and they're actually written in softly into the new guidelines now. In 2013, there was these two studies where they gave a package deal, epinephrine, vasopressin, and methylprednisolone in cardiac arrest, and it had a better outcome, a better neuro outcome. There were smaller studies, and they haven't been reproduced yet. How small? How small uh, were they? Like about 300 people. A couple, couple hundred patients. Yeah. It's more than therapeutic hypothermia. Yeah. I mean, it was so. a remarkable <laughs> benefit, right? It was like... It was, it was almost double the outcome. I think we have to keep our eyes open for that, huh? And the AHA's acknowledged it. It's in the guidelines as an acceptable alternative, something that you can try. But it's kind of weird. It's a little contradictory because they took vasopressin out of the guidelines. And now you're saying, well, you can't give vasopressin if you give it with steroids and if you give it with epinephrine. So it's really a bundle approach. We don't know which thing works and which doesn't work. And, you know, I mean, we've had problems with bundles before <laughs> with some things. So it's something to keep your eye on and that you can think about if you're doing it. Uh, placement of an invasive airway. Now, this one I find a little hard to believe. Um, what's that? You don't like doing anything. No, no, no. I'm the opposite. I Jeez, like invasive cream. airways. I think invasive airways are good. So this was uh, placement of an invasive airway. Uh, 100,000 patients um, considered uh, return of spontaneous circulation. And placement of an invasive airway was not associated with a favorable outcome. Now, why would that be? Well, this was an observational study. You would need to, you know, randomize this. Um, observationally, maybe patient, patients who needed invasive airways were going to do worse, and they did do worse. Um, when they looked at this in the pre-hospital setting, they did randomize, and there was no clear benefit. So, um, you know, invasive airway in the ED, your call, I know, questionable. Yeah, I think my thought on that is if you have adequate people resuscitating your patient, you can perform the airway management without hindering chest compressions or getting in the way of defibrillation, then I think it's reasonable to do. But I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take somebody off chest compressions. I wouldn't take somebody that is responsible for defibrillation. I wouldn't allow the hold compressions so I can see the cords. If we're going to intubate during active CPR, we need to be able to do it while the patient is having chest compressions. Right. And it can be done. I think the evidence shows that it's not necessary. Well, the evidence doesn't show benefit from it, but the thing is I really don't want to lose that procedure. I think we need to keep our skills in that procedure, and that's one of the major situations we do it. So, yeah. so our take-home message is to this point, before we enter the last phase here of the talk, Defibrillation we've talked about early as possible. There's some cool new things you can do, this double sequential, these different vectors. So if you have two monitors, you can try all this stuff. I know some people are doing hands-on defibrillation, which I think is completely crazy, but apparently it's safe, and they're actually holding the pads down. So you can do whatever you want. Maybe the more flashy, the more dramatic, the better it'll work. The Who here, so after what we've said, who here believes, or even when you came into the room, believes that these medications work in ACLS? How many people? The very few hands coming up. How many who, people here have given one of these medications? Who doesn't? So you got to make sure you like check the hand. You got to make sure they don't have central cord syndrome and they're like can raise their hand. No, I mean the the fact is we're still giving these medications. They don't work, and it's a shame because we haven't been allowed to do the trials that we need to do to study these medications. Epinephrine, in particular, there was a study in Australia that had to be halted because it wasn't there was bad media. People, the media came out and said you're families aren't getting the standard of care, which is epinephrine, but that standard of care is based on really no evidence. So there are, is an ongoing study in the UK, which will hopefully answer the question with epinephrine. There is also an ongoing study, amiodarone versus lidocaine versus placebo, which is almost done in rolling patients. So we're going to have some more data on these medications pretty soon. Airway, like I said, I'm not saying this isn't a debate of whether or not you need to intubate in ED. It's just you shouldn't be intubating during cardiac arrest, I think. That's what the data shows. Don't take away from the things that really work. So 
Let's follow our case now to the next point. So now you check, he has a pulse. So everybody's happy, you get everybody's, you know, it's high fives and you're done, right? That's it, you can go back and just relax now. I mean, that's what it used to be. ACLS almost kind of, before the 2005 guidelines, really stopped at this point. And then that first time he did get ROSC, he said, well, what do I do now? I don't really know what to do. Now we have pretty good guidelines and it's really this time that matters the most because now you're dealing with a subset of people that have the best chance for survival. They've had ROSC, now we need to do everything we can to keep them alive and to get them to the definitive care that they need. So there's two main therapies that we're doing. Who here is using therapeutic hypothermia or targeted temperature management is called now in the ED? Not who, everybody. Who here is not using it? So, yeah, so there's people well, who are not using it. You don't have it. Yeah. Well, you have ice bags, so you could like <laughs> cold water. But you're not doing it. You're not doing it in your, your center has chosen not to. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. And yeah. then the cath lab. Is everybody here sending all of their post-arrest, post-V-fib arrest patients to the cath lab? This is the interesting question. Who is sending all of your post-cardiac arrests to the cath lab? Yeah. Try. <laughs> who, who no, but this is really, this is the main question. So show of hands again, who's sending? So if it was your choice, so I would, would say you about send a them? quarter. A quarter. Trying to, we're trying to, right. So, um, so we'll get to this. It sounds yeah. like we gotta focus it's, on that. So we're gonna breeze through therapeutic hypothermia. Um, so basic critical care is very important. We've resuscitated the patient. Sean and Jeff are talking about these fancy things that may or may not work. But we still got to do the basics. We got to make sure we are oxygenating and ventilating the patient. We're perfusing them. Avoid hypoxia, hyperoxia, the extremes of sugar. Let's keep the patient, the homeostatic situation, as good as possible. Who here has been told that oxygen's bad for you and we shouldn't administer it anymore? So there's that. I mean, this is all just very anti-American. Yeah, more is better. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but let's talk about therapeutic hypothermia. So appropriate candidates, so it's really only been, so, so this is one therapy I'm cautiously optimistic for, okay? And I say cautiously optimistic because I think the entire database of randomized controlled patients is about 380 that have had control versus therapeutic hypothermia. And significant benefit from therapeutic hypothermia, but those were all VTAC, VFib patients that were resuscitated. So um, no you know, PEA patients, no other patients that were resuscitated, just no reasons for other people to get hypoxic brain damage, just VTVF, about 380 patients, half of them got therapeutic hypothermia, half of them didn't, and they did do remarkably better. Now, I know Bill thinks there's uh, other, another group that he would, he, you would therapeutic uh, hypothermia treat? Yeah, I, I think, so I agree with Jeff, oddly enough, that the VTVF arrest that's resuscitated is probably the best person to undergo hypothermia, but there's also this sudden incident group, somebody that is a hanging, regardless of the rhythm, choking, air, sudden airway compromise, even an opiate overdose, Okay, not polydrug overdose, but a sudden bad thing that occurs, causes arrest, and then you fix it, and then you're just left with a patient that is arrested. That kind of group, I think, can also benefit. There's no data on that, but it's a group that I think we should at least consider chilling, assuming there is an ongoing badness in terms of their physiology. Okay, so the, the irony of therapeutic hypothermia, if you look at the literature, so they looked at giving it in EMS, so giving it faster, like faster is better, right? Let's get them cooled quickly. But it turns out there's no benefit. You know, resuscitation 2013, there was no benefit. Um, how about let's get them colder? Because clearly colder is better, right? This is America. Colder is better. New England Journal 2013, no benefit. Okay, let's do the kids. Because kids, right, they have, when they fall into the lake and they become hypothermic, they can survive anything. No benefit in kids. And here was where you can see three randomized controlled trials, um, which showed you know a 1.55 relative risk of survival with better neuro outcome, and you know maybe 400 patients total. So a very important point here in terms of PCI, the guidelines again came out 10 days ago. Very important slide for you to remember. Take a picture of it. In a patient that you've resuscitated, that you think has had a cardiogenic cardiac arrest that has ST segment elevation likely representing a STEMI, that's a class one indication to go to the cath lab. 
Boom. Okay. Can you American? get your patients to the cath lab if they've had STEMI post-cardiac arrest? Can you get them to the cath lab if they haven't woken up? Yes. Does anyone have trouble? You bring, you bring up a good point. If you look down yeah. below here, the metal status, the presenting metal status is not a predictor. There it's are not a predictor. can present to you comatose, unresponsive, requiring mechanical ventilation. That is not a factor, and cardiologists frequently quote that. So be cautious and careful. That's a class two indication. Okay? meaning that it's a, it's a very significant issue that we need to factor in. So in situations like this, we need to not only be the patient's doctor, but their advocate in getting the cardiologist to the bedside and examining the patient and having a discussion with a document that in part comes from one of their societies. Wait, wait, wait. What about the oh. second one? Oh, do you want to talk about that one? Suspected cardiogenic arrest. So this is the real, I think, question we need to deal with. This is the hard one, though. This is where, you, again, you think it's cardiogenic, but they don't have ST elevation. STEMI, right. This is the kind of patient that if you think it's cardiogenic, then you should push for the cath lab. But they've really downplayed this one and used the phrase, reasonable for select patients. Is anyone from France? Apparently, the big studies they did were in France, and they showed insane benefit from taking everyone to the cath lab. Something like 60% yes. had um, uh, stentable lesions that were presumably the cause of their arrest. Um, you know, I think we drink a little less red wine and eat a little less healthy. Maybe that's even better. But our cardiologists, we're, we're battling with them to take a STEMI that's comatose still. So I, I think we're one step away from that. You might have enthusiastic centers or maybe a different payer mix or maybe, you know, it's the right time of day where you can get a cardiac arrest with a suspected cardiogenic cause. But realize there is a recommendation to do it. So if you can work on that, you know, if it were me and I'm in cardiac arrest, do the CPR, do the defib. Don't give me ACLS meds or intubate me. I just want you to get me back to spontaneous circulation. And then if I'm still comatose and you've gotten me back, then you can intubate me. Please cool me and take me to the cath lab. All right, so let's bring this home right here. So the prognosis you can see, this is everything we talked about. The odds ratios, it's all unfavorable for the basic things. That's really what matters. And the last things that we talked about, the key is post-resuscitation care. These are the people that are gonna survive. The therapeutic hyperthermia, the data, is questionable. I think it's controversial. It's still recommended in the ED. The coronary perfusion, this is huge. Neurologic, out, neurologic status is not a predictor, and you have to push your cardiologist to bring these people to the cath lab. It's incredibly important. This all starts in the ED, and this is what needs to be done. And if done right, hopefully our patient will get to the ICU and get a bed and cool down after 24 hours and get an AICD and go back home with his family. Thank you, All guys. Right. Thank you, everybody. Great. Thank you.